Yeah, don't forget to put all that stuff in there about the pacifier. I want the audience to know. Welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year, starting in 1920. Today's film is from 1925, Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin. I'll go ahead and say this. I, I've never seen this film. I've seen so many scenes from this film so many times and have never contextualized them, never taken just the 75 minutes out of my day to just watch this before. It's a it's a it's such a quick little movie. Yeah, and, uh, and I'm so happy I finally did. Uh, it was really nice to get, uh, especially, you know, the Odessa step sequence, which we'll talk more in depth later, but that is such an infamous sequence in film history, and you can't, like, go to film school without at least seeing some sort of clip from it. And you can find this film all over the place. It's available on the Criterion channel. It's on Mubi. And I think I found it on HBO Max in September of 2020, anyways. Um, and it's also just in the public domain. I watched this film last week at 12 a.m., middle of the night. Didn't need coffee or anything. I was invested. I also took a big risk and started this film at around 11 p.m., right when I usually go to bed. But I was into it. And almost immediately, as soon as it was done, I was like, I gotta start my research. And even though I did a ton of research for this film, I still feel totally unprepared. Yeah. I also am just sort of giving both of us a break here. I don't think you can actually scratch the surface of the importance of this film in an hour-long podcast. <laughs> um, this is a film that deserves to be studied. I mean, people have studied this thing for decades and will continue to. We can just sound like dum-dums on this one. It's fine. This movie's smarter than we are. We both fully acknowledge that. <laughs> I'm speaking for Arthur here. I felt much more engaged with this film than I have the past uh, the past couple. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's not to disparage uh, the past couple of films. I, I really enjoyed, you know, Harold Lloyd's Safety Last. And I really like Douglas Fairbanks. He's very charismatic. But this is like this is art. Douglas Fairbanks, the star of The Thief of Baghdad, is a very crucial reason why this film is regarded as a classic within America. Uh, he brought it to America and helped get it screened in 1926. Didn't Douglas Fairbanks and his wife uh, go over to Russia? Yes. So Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford were sort of the, the king and queen of Hollywood at this time. Uh, just two incredibly famous and influential actors. Yeah, and they brought it back with them, and it was a huge uh, critical success here. David Oselznik, he was the executive at MGM Studio at the time, and he gathered everyone in the studio and said they had to watch it as if it was a piece of art, as if it was like a painting. I believe the direct quote is if it was a Rubens or a Raphael. That's so shocking to me, too, because it's a Russian propaganda film. It was commissioned in 1925 by the Soviet government as propaganda. And it, it feels that way, even though it is incredibly artistic and well done. Um, you can feel that its origins are as a propaganda film. One thing I do want to ask you about is the beginning intertitles say this is uh, a film from the 1905 film series. But to my knowledge, either they're all like I can't find any information on that at all. Okay, so from what I understand, in 1925, the Soviet government commissioned 
uh, a bunch of sort of celebratory things for the 20th anniversary of the 1905 revolution. And this film was just one of those things, but it was, I don't think they commissioned like any other films. Okay. So 1905, I can't remember if it says film series or not, but I can see if it's like the 1905 series. It's just like a part of this, like other artistic project going on. This movie came out in 1925. 1925 feels like such an ominous year. As you look up events going on around the world, right at the beginning of the year, Prime Minister Benito Mussolini dissolves parliament and declares that he's now the dictator of Italy. Uh, President Coolidge in America is saying that we shouldn't have the inheritance tax anymore, pushing America more and more towards like rampant capitalist state, which will become important in just a couple of years when everything crashes. Let's see. I always want to check in on Germany because I always feel like uh, something terrible is happening in Germany. Their president, a social democrat, has died, and now a conservative a wartime hero named General Hindenburg has taken over, and he hates the social democrats, and in just a couple years, he will put Adolf Hitler into the role of chancellor. Adolf Hitler, just coming out of jail because he tried to lead a coup against the whole government, um, will soon be chancellor. As far as... You have to take this film... Uh, in the context of when it was made and like trying to dissect how this big imperial superpower over the course of 20 years became this, this experimental socialist trying to be communist state. Um, like there's just way too much to get into there. So try to focus on the film and branch out from there into Russian history as it is necessary, maybe because I'm not an expert in Russian history and most people have uh, strong opinions about it, too, because it's so wrapped up in politics and big, broad ideas about how economies should work that as soon as you start to say anything, you run the risk of someone being like, how dare you? Um, <laughs> so we'll try to focus on the film. It's also interesting because this film started out for Eisenstein as a um, huge epic that was going to, it was going to begin with the war between Russia and Japan in 1904, and it was going to climax with the St. Petersburg uprising. But then he saw the Odessa steps and started to realize there was a lot of cinematic potential. In the original screenplay, it only took up one page. There is this great uh, quote uh, he wrote, when can a particular episode take the place of the whole, logically and completely, only in the cases where the detail is typical? In other words, when it reflects the whole like a piece of broken mirror. This film was originally supposed to be a very broad overscope of Russian history and this war, and it ended up becoming this hyper-focused film on this one uprising inside of a battleship. It's uh, He was able to find the universal themes he wanted to get across by projecting them through this one event. I love that, actually. That's nice. Um, kind of one of the cool, fun facts about this film is that uh, at the time of release, outside of experimental cinema, it had the shortest average time for a shot to last. It's three seconds, whereas most American productions at the time, by comparison, were about five seconds, and Germany was at nine seconds. One thing that I've noticed about all the films that we've watched so far um, you know, their theatricality. Uh, this is the first one that really feels 
cinematic. Like, you cannot reproduce Battleship Potemkin on the stage. It is tied to the way that film works in such a unique way. Um, I mean, even when you think of the films we've watched up to this point, I wouldn't call any of them super purposefully paced. It, It does seem like editing sort of took a front seat for Russian cinema before it did for other countries. I do know that at the time, Giga Veritov, whose real name was Dennis Kaufman, but he was doing Man with a Movie Camera, which also has a lot of very quick editing. That whole film is an experiment in putting images right next to each other and sort of seeing what film is capable of as far as eliciting an emotional reaction purely through editing, trying not to use actors. I love that film. Yes, great film. And then, of course, the Kuleshov effect was invented right around this time, which was pretty much showing people making the same facial reactions and then showing different images, cutting to different images from those reactions and showing showing to students, showing to people who are making films with these experimental films that if you can't get the emotion you want to elicit out of a performance, you can get it out of an edit. So I do think that editing in general took a front seat in Russian cinema, I mean, this is, and this is all just me contemplating. Uh, this is really a huge turning point for cinema. And it does feel like so many lessons that have been learned over the past. We're getting close ish to two decades into from when the very, very first films were made. Now people are starting to learn things, not just from history, but also from other cultures. And it's becoming this universal art form across the world. And this film seems to really encapsulate lessons that have been learned by other filmmakers, lessons that are being taught by people at the time period that are super fresh. And it's implementing them all in this super tight, cohesive film that rushes through and just, I mean, this this felt like a journey to me. And I, I loved that. Sort of going on a side tangent here, when you think about, you know, War and Peace or when you think about Tarkovsky or like the Russian filmmakers who would go on to really influence film later on, how Russian cinema sort of gained this notoriety for having these very long extended shots, showing huge sequences, showing huge moments in time and like not cutting for long periods of time. That sort of was considered the style of that cinema for about two or three decades there. It's really fascinating that I was so engaged with the plot and the events going on. And there's not a protagonist in this film. Uh, this is a this is a story about the group, not even one specific group, because the camera will, when it gets to uh, the Odessa step scenes, it goes into a crowd of people and then we leave that crowd of people. Um, so there's not there's not a character to latch onto, but you still, because of the the filmmaking language, you are invested in the events of the story. Yeah, I'm going to butcher this name because no one actually, obviously, is a silent film. No one says it out loud. Um, but you you really think the film's going to kind of center around Grigory uh, Vakulinchuk, who's the uh, the sailor who starts to lead the revolt and, like, is kind of their main central voice for the first couple chapters. And then he dies. But then there's still so much of the film left, and it's no longer... He's just sort of an inciting incident. He's sort of a catalyst for it. But he's definitely not the protagonist or any sort of central character. Which is really interesting, too. Because it is this film about group effort. It's definitely centered around communism. 
But it also, it does make it very clear that it took that one guy to start being like, we are not going to take this anymore, these horrible conditions. And when he starts saying that, people start to agree with him and understand him. And then they're able to come together as a group. And he doesn't become their leader. He just, he starts it and then they all form a group together. That's right. And so many of the shots don't focus on him. So many of the shots are about reactions from other people, other random people in the crowds. Yeah, it's not his story. Uh, that's hard. It is very hard to pull off. I kind of do just want to jump into this Odessa step sequence, though. Um, let's just jump into the Odessa step sequence, then. <laughs> I thought this was... I have seen so many clips from this, and I feel like I've even seen most of this sequence all the way through before. I think I have, too. There was something about watching this film from beginning to end. There was It was worse for me knowing what I was about to see when it was starting up, because the tension at the beginning of the scene before things get violent is very interesting. If you don't really know where that sequence is going to go exactly, and then they all just start getting brutally murdered. You can totally see how allegedly Eisenstein went to those steps and just and just said, oh, this is the movie. Because it does feel like the whole film is leading up to this sequence of because of this riot on a ship, all these people who have nothing really to do with that ship, they're just trying to bring supplies and stuff. And they are in support, but they didn't have anything to do with the riot itself. Start to just come under complete fire on these huge steps and they're being attacked from the top and they're at the bottom it's just very very cinematic uh someone who had a cinematographer's eye as eisenstein clearly did um you, i can definitely see how he would look at those and say oh this is the this is the whole movie actually this is the movie seeing a child get trampled and then of course the infamous baby carriage falling back the one shot that stuck out to me that and i know i've seen this scene before but i don't remember this shot is the woman walking up the steps to try to confront the soldiers and the camera craning to follow her as these long shadows uh, stretch down the steps. I thought that was gorgeous. Yeah. Ominous and terrifying, but gorgeous. Um, you don't see the faces of any of the soldiers. Uh, you only see their boots and their guns. And I mean, that's the perfect, perfect, right? For cinematic language, dehumanizes them and makes them into this just oppressive force coming down on the, the citizens. And you see all of their faces. You see them all in close-up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't care how many times I see it. That woman's eye getting shot out is just one of those images. It's just so gripping and horrifying. And all. And she's, like, going to try and save a kid. It's just, I don't know. It's It's so good. So well thought out and well planned. Yeah, it is. It is like a painting in how it's composed. So much of this film. What's the cinematographer's name? Um, Tisse? Edward Tisse? I don't know. I'm probably messing that up. Whatever. He laid down tracks to the left of the steps and used multiple dolly shots. And that was kind of unheard of at the time. It, especially within Soviet cinema. I mean, people were, were using dollies and were using tracks, but to lay down all of these and, like, to use these multiple shots and, like, to line them together and stuff uh, was considered a huge moment in camera movement and editing. You can definitely tell that there was some innovation going on on the set. Uh, I can definitely see how people... There's so many artists and so many 
not just from that time period, but still today, who see that sequence as such a huge inspirational uh, moment in cinema. Even if you haven't seen this scene, you have seen it because it's referenced in so many films. We're just reading off the Wikipedia page here. I'm cheating, but uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Yep, I remember that. Oh, my God. It's a vacuum cleaner, right? <laughs> oh, my God. That is one of the best jokes. Uh, they say Francis Ford Coppola is the godfather. Is that... Um, I, I think I remember that. Towards the end, someone's gunned down on the steps. I think that's a reference. I'm not looking at Wikipedia, so there you go. But I, I remember in The Untouchables as well. It's very close to the beginning. You, it is a baby carriage that you see falling backwards. Uh, it's a Brian De Palma film. That was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. You know, I just think about um, Eisenstein getting this project, and it, it's the perfect project to test out these theories of cinema in a propaganda film where you're trying to stir the emotions of uh, your audience. It feels like a lucky break for him almost. He was 27 when he got this project. Crazy. 27 years old. I, I'm really, I'm a big fan of Russian cinema. I do like it a lot. And this is a very eye-opening moment for me to get to watch this and um, sort of see the genesis of Russia trying, I don't even want to say trying, like Russia putting themselves on a pedestal saying we are going to be a frontier in this art form as we've been a frontier in so many other art forms. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's just incredible. This movie really blew me away. I forget. Have you ever seen the seven hour uh, War and Peace film? Nope. The reason. So War and Peace directed by Sergei Bondarchuk, you know, whatever. I'm messing it up. And that entire movie was made as a response to the King Vidor American production. And they were they were they pretty much saw that and said America is not going to get the definitive film of War and Peace that is going to be a Russian production. There is no actual financial amount for that film, but allegedly it was, it's $2 billion. There's 200,000 extras. This was something you could sign up to be a part of as like an assistance to your government. It's such an incredible film, not just because of its scope and epic proportions, which it's very well known for, but it's very experimental. I mean, there is some stuff going on in that film visually and audibly. Um, it was a huge project. And I just think of that when I think of Battleship Potemkin, because Battleship Potemkin is kind of a very similar situation where it was this uh, more or less commissioned film. But within Russian culture, it seems that when there are these commissioned films, it's not so much about looming over and making sure it is done in the specific way. It, it really is... Part of it really is they want to help accelerate the art form forward and they will let you do what you want and create an artistic vision through it. To think about all of the crazy stuff going on with this film as far as the editing and the cinematography went on, I mean, that's a pretty big risk for a country to take when it's like this huge commission project that they want to put on and they seem to just sort of roll with it. Um, and that's the impression I get, you know, as long as the director is at the end of the day, supporting the uh, party goals. And this is still a film that 100% celebrates the 1905 revolution and the idea of worker rebellion. As long as it does all that, yeah. I guess the director is good to, good to go. In the middle of the film, they raise up a flag, right, on the ship after yeah. they take it over. They raise up a flag, and it's uh, this white flag. 
And I was kind of curious if that had some sort of different meaning in Russian culture, raising a white flag, because here in America, a white flag means uh, surrender. But this was done in an act of victory. Well, what that actually was is, is a black and white film. But for the premiere in 1925, those film frames were colored red over that flag. It's the red socialist flag that's being raised on that ship, oh. uh, which I, I, I found way cool. Just this one instance of color that's them raising the red flag of socialism. Where's that? You know, why hasn't someone redone that? I'm sure someone has. <laughs> right. I'm gonna I'm gonna swap gears on you here, Arthur. What about this film did you think was ahead of its time? Oh, I'm usually the one asking this question. I swapped it up on you today. Thank you. Um, definitely the... I mean, we've already talked about the use of montage and... Um, I also think the lack of a clear protagonist is not only ahead of its time for the time period, but also just so experimental and sort of like avant-garde in general. Like, it's so hard to tell a story without a protagonist. Um, and not even like an ensemble cast. Like, you don't really know anyone's name in this film. It's just this, it's just faces. It's just people in the crowd. And you still feel invested in the crowd and the group story. And I mean, I've already kind of said what I thought was was ahead of its time, mainly with the form of the film, just the editing style and everything. Did you would you say anything in this film felt uh, felt a little outdated? When it comes to this question, we always trip ourselves up because we we try to put ourselves in the shoes of an audience watching it in 1925 or whenever it was made and think like, okay, well, what's out of date uh, for 1925? But I do want to think of like, okay, me watching in 2020, what just hasn't aged very well. Mm hmm. I don't know. Some of the close-ups might have some overacting in them. There's a lot of close-ups in this film, and this is still a silent film. It's a time when talent is being expressive, and sometimes that just doesn't translate as well in a yeah. close-up, or it's or just not used to it in a close-up, really. But it it works for silent film. Uh, it it feels a little outdated now. And most of the actors in this film are purposefully untrained, just regular people. Uh, and that plays into the film's theme, obviously. This film is definitely saying that it's going to elicit emotions using editing and not performance. Um, outside of that one sailor who dies, there really isn't much in the way of performance in this film. I mean, that's a weird thing to state because everyone, there's so many people on screen and they are all definitely performing. But it's definitely not anchoring itself on anyone's performance or depending on an actor's specific talent. Even the Odessa step sequence, I mean, the kid for the trampling sequence literally covers his face and looks down at the ground. You know, I don't know this for a fact, obviously. No one does, except for the people who were on set that day who are all dead. I imagine that that kid probably just couldn't keep a straight face or like... It was probably just easier to be like, okay, now just roll over and look down while we film this other composite shot that's going to go over it. So, you know, like <laughs> the film, I would agree with that, that especially in some of the close-ups that does come across, that the Eisenstein does not seem to be much of a director's actor at this point in his career. I will, okay, I will say that the uh, villains in Battleship Potemkin are uh, one-dimensional. If we want to say anything bad about this film... There is literally a mustache-twirling villain. They come <laughs> off as caricatures. But the film is dealing with archetypes. Yeah. It's dealing with symbols. 
none of the characters have any depth. Yeah, every character in the film is just there to help make the point. I But it is kind of a silly, silly archetype that the villains get cast in. It, it still works, especially the Odessa step sequence when we don't see their faces, mm. right? When they are just like an oppressive force coming down the steps. Then yeah. it works. Then Absolutely. it's great. Yeah, so, and then, of course, Eisenstein would go on to direct Ivan the Terrible in 1944, uh, which hinges itself entirely on the performance of uh, Nikolai Cherkesov. It's a very long film. Uh, you know what? It actually isn't a long film. Well, it's three hours and seven minutes. To me, that's not long at all. <laughs> that's nothing. <laughs> I don't have anything for outdated stuff. I mean, to me, it's just insane to think that this film, which regardless of what I take from it, it's clearly a propaganda piece about Russian government in 1925 being brought to America and people just being floored by it and not even seeming to care about that aspect of it shows that the form and grace of this film sort of superseded any other judgments that could be done on it. And to me, that's what makes a great film. That is what I look for in a film when this, because when it comes to narrative, I mean, I do, I love a solid narrative, but I just, I'm not going to be surprised at this point in my life. I've read too many books. I've seen too many films. I know how your narrative is going to play out. And that does, that's not in any way a bad thing for me. I don't mind that at all. But when a film can sort of supersede the notions of its narrative and its story and project something to me through its form and its images and its editing and sound alone, that's when I realize I'm watching something that's truly great. Um, so it's hard for me to think, oh yeah, this is outdated in any way because it still totally clutched me and I felt completely swept away by it. Um, so yeah, I guess you're right. We do kind of always trip up on that question. Yeah, I mean, it is just like oh, some things hold up really well over time. Uh, most of the films that we watch, you know, we're watching classic films that have stood the test of time. Yeah. So that question is a little hard to answer. But, you know, there are I, I try to look for things that just and show coming off of the heels of the Thief of Baghdad with its horrifying racial depictions is like, OK, well, Battleship Potemkin didn't do any of that. So for me, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a 10 out of 10, you know, <laughs> there's no blackface in this film. It's great. <laughs> Um, I wasn't able to find a review from the time period. I also wasn't able to find any marketing from the time period, which, I don't know, it, I just don't have as much access uh, to Russian libraries as I'd like. But I was able to find uh, quotes from some infamous historical figures on Battleship Potemkin. Um, I was able to find at least one quote through Wikipedia from uh, Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, oh, you yeah. know him, uh, who says Potemkin is a marvelous film without equal in the cinema. Anyone who had no firm political conviction could become a Bolshevik after seeing the film. Basically just recognizing that uh, film is a great propaganda tool. And uh, the Nazi party was really into propaganda. Uh, one of the reasons that Hitler thought the German army lost the First World War was because the... Uh, other side just had better propaganda, so he made a point of focusing his attention on Nazi propaganda and go on to make uh, Triumph of the Will. Have you seen that, by the way? 
I have not seen Triumph of the Will. I've seen many clips from that as well. I'm a clip guy. You know, I'll get on YouTube and watch stuff all night. But yeah, I've never sat through the whole film. You know, top cast actor is Adolf Hitler. So, you know, the main character of The Great Dictator is Hitler and no one talks about that. (laughs) That big floating globe and him just playing with it in the room. Gotta be one of my favorite moments in any movie. The music, Chaplin's expressions and his movement, it's so, so good. So even though uh, Goebbels was saying that this film is uh, incredibly effective, Heinrich Himmler was saying that it should be banned from the uh, members of the SS. No one should watch it. So they clearly recognized that it had the power to uh, turn people against their authoritarian uh, administration. Hmm. That is so fascinating. I guess it is like a silent film, and maybe I just have a lot of distance from it as someone who's living in 2020, but I can't even think of a film coming out now that I would watch and be like, oh, that that like that's what radicalized me. When was the last time like a film notoriously radicalized people? I mean, film has a unique ability to make me want to go purchase Godzilla figurines. I guess I do own like over a thousand physical Blu-rays. And that's pretty radical. I haven't even seen all of them. I've seen 76% of my collection. That's very low. Hey. That three out of four. But also people buy books that they haven't read. Yes, I do. I do that. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I don't think this film gives you that much historical context in its inner titles, does it? No, it, it just says part of the series of 1905, but it doesn't give you a big setup or anything. Right. So I think that if you watch this film without knowing much about what was going on in Russia at that time, you might even think that this is a film about the Russian Revolution, but it's not. It's a film about a small event that took place in a sort of like a precursor to the Russian Revolution 12 years before the revolution actually took place. This film ends with them sort of facing down a fleet of other Russian ships that might be hostile, but then it turns out that they're brothers. They're, they've joined them in the revolution. And then the film ends on this high note where all the sailors are waving to each other and going off to presumably overthrow the, the empire, Czar. the czar. Yeah. It's not what happened at all. It's weird because the film starts off with a kind of a literal reinterpretation of the events of the real incident of Battleship Potemkin with the men getting angry about the uh, rotten meat and uh, being called up to the deck when they uh, stop following orders. And then there's a firing squad, but then the firing squad turns on the officers and there's a, a fight that breaks out and then the sailors all take control of the ship. But then by the end, it does become something that's way more symbolic about Russian history as a as a whole in this time period. Because the actual events of Battleship Potemkin are a little bit sad. Uh, after the sailors take control of the ship, they don't have a port that they can stop in to really get supplies and refuel um, because the Tsar's forces are still in control of everything. Uh, they kind of wander around and then have to flee Russia and trade their ship to another country. And most of them just go into exile afterwards. They don't really go on to do much of anything, but their story lives on as a sort of uh, as a symbol of the um, czar's 
you know, military forces joining the cause of the mm. revolution, joining the workers. Yeah. yeah, so by the end, it takes on, the film takes on a much more symbolic role. The 1905 revolution didn't result in any sort of government overthrow. Uh, the Tsar put in place a parliament that was supposed to be representative of the people uh, called the Duma, but it really didn't have any power. So for 12 more years, he continued to have a strong grip on all of the processes of Russian government. He was still an authoritarian and he was still wildly unpopular. And eventually, once the World War really started to chip away at Russia's economy and resources, there was nothing he could do to stop a revolution mm. from happening. I find it really interesting that both of the both this 1905 precursor to the real revolution and the real revolution that takes place in 1917, both of those events happen because Russia is losing a war. Uh, in 1905, it's the Russo-Japanese War. Russia suffers this humiliating defeat. Their navy's just destroyed in the Pacific. They lose a bunch of territory near Korea. Um, and it's really humiliating because it's the first time that a European power loses to um, this up-and-coming Asian force. And then, of course, in uh, the World War, Russia is losing to Germany. The Tsar makes a, a, a series of really bad decisions, and he just loses control of uh, his people. They, to they just do not respect him. They don't respect the royal family, and revolution just becomes sort of inevitable. People don't have food. People don't feel like they're being taken care of. And every time they try to protest, the czar's troops indiscriminately just shoot them. And it's uh, it just becomes like this inevitable sort of thing that happens. So I, I think that has a big part to do with it. Losing the war, all these resources going to waste. The people are going hungry. Like, why are these rulers of ours going into these worthless wars that they are losing? Hmm. I love that. Whether or not you agree with uh, the policies that follow the huh. revolution, uh, it's it's impossible to look at the situation leading up to it and see it as anything but completely unjust. And I think this film does a great job of portraying that. Like you're you're totally on the side of the sailors, especially when uh, the captain comes over and looks at the rotten meat, sees the maggots crawling around on the meat, and just says, "Oh, those are just." fly eggs don't worry about them yeah it's like what is, what are maggots <laughs> supposed to be <laughs> and apparently that is based on a real exchange that one of the ship captains or ship doctors had with the sailors on the ship and you can t you totally understand where they're coming from so it's really hard to uh figure out like the real events of odessa some of what i read said it was a, a peaceful protest that was fired upon but there's also accounts that uh, eventually the protesters started burning down like pieces of the port and then the authorities fired upon them. It does seem like one of those events in history that is just messy. There's a mob, there's troops doing their own thing. It, it becomes really hard to interpret what happened, and especially when we are almost 100 years away from the event. Eventually, this film's depiction of the Odessa step sequence will like be canonically what's considered to have happened. I think I read somewhere where someone was saying, like, the Odessa steps, nothing happened near those steps. That's just a staircase in the city. But the protests, the riots, the eventual shootings that happened at the port were not near those steps at all. It was just a visual that Eisenstein 
really fell in love with. And now it has become like this thing where everyone assumed there was a massacre on the steps because it is so famous. And I guess that is like sort of a way that this film radicalizes people. I guess that is kind of how film can radicalize people to a certain extent is like twisting the truth in such subtle ways, you know, like within the context of what happened historically, it's not actually important if things happen on the steps or not. But because of this film and its popularity, this false truth has been created. I mean, my first time watching Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, I was convinced that was real for like a month. <laughs> After you go off on Nanook of the North and defend that film. <laughs> you right. You right. Um, and I don't think this, this film doesn't come across as super pro-communist, uh, but it definitely comes across as like pro-revolution. I see. And I did think it came across as pro-communism. I guess I just mean like I don't know the Karl Marxy I don't know it doesn't have too much to say about that but it does have a lot to say about just authoritarian <sighs> maybe it did who knows actually that's a dumb question because the people involved in this film definitely <laughs> know that's sort of one of those like auto responses that I throw out when I don't really know um besides the Odessa step scenes did you have a favorite scene in this uh film maybe not a scene but like a series of shots even something that stuck out to you besides the odessa step sequence i definitely loved it when he when the main sailor was killed and thrown off the side of the boat and they all like went down yeah and he falls into the um into the ropes and is hanging there in such a again just a well composed and painterly shot yeah so even after i remember watching the first two acts especially was really great because i had seen the shot of the meat with maggots in it before but after that sequence when they go down into the barracks of the ship the way that is lit and the shadows are like ominous on the main sailor at the time gregory as he's you know looming over that was so good and that just it was so beautiful to watch and i loved that shot for the the wide shot there all the soldiers in their hammocks kind of swaying back and forth with the movement mm. of the ship. It's oh, yeah. They're crisscross. There's no organization to this place where they live. It's just kind of a free-for-all, and it looks chaotic, even though it's all these men asleep and just trying to get some rest. Um, but it feels so uneasy. I love it. I love it. I love the sequence towards the end with the ships coming closer to each other, just that building tension of the ship's machinery churning and the music that's... Uh, but I don't, I don't know if that was actually the, the real music from the film or if that was a some sort of reinterpretation, rescore. I don't know. I was wondering that, too. There was a lot. Actually, it didn't even bring that up. There was a lot of sound in this film that I was unsure if that was in the original cut or not. I mean, there are group cries you hear over certain parts of it. I couldn't even tell if it was like somehow some really specific Foley or like I, I couldn't even tell what it was. But I thought that was interesting as well. I don't know. I do feel like there's probably a ton more to say about uh, this film. It's incredibly influential, and yeah, it's it's coming out in an incredibly important time uh, when there's so many changes taking place in one of the world's superpowers. Uh, 1925 is when Lenin dies, and there's this sort of a power struggle for who's going to control the Communist Party, and it ends up being uh, Joseph Stalin, who becomes uh, Joseph Stalin. So this really is like a turning point for what the Soviet Union will become. And 
like I said before, whatever happens after this terrible massacres and famines, this film does a great job of representing through symbols and cinematic language why the changes took place and what the emotional like uprisings were in a population of people at this time. Hmm. Yeah. At least that's my interpretation of it. I love that. Uh, I also want to say that when this film was released in Russia, Robin Hood made more money at the box office. Was that Douglas Fairbanks? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, yet again, the Hollywood garbage takes over the artistic statement. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that is not how I feel. <laughs> just had to get that joke in there. Uh. Um, okay, so let's let's take a look at our list. Uh, what should we watch uh, next week? What are so we next, next week, week we are watching A Page of Madness, directed by Tenosuke Kenugasa. Probably mess. Uh, I'm I'm sure everyone has just come to terms with the fact. If you only at this point, I don't know how to pronounce anything. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> important context for this film: it's considered an early avant-garde experimental film, and the version we will be watching is even more avant-garde and experimental than it was originally intended because it was supposed to be screened with a live storyteller telling you what was happening, which we will not have. And a solid chunk of it is missing. Jeez. Um, yeah, you can find this film online. It is a Japanese public domain film, but it is also available to rent from Amazon Prime for $1.99. Having uh, having already watched it, I do think this film benefits from reading a plot summary. Um, whether you want to do it beforehand or afterwards is completely up to you. I read it afterwards because I do like to take the film in on its own merits first. But there is literally zero shame in doing that because you would have had a deeper understanding of the story if you'd seen it in its original context anyways. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I will definitely be reading something about it beforehand. Yeah. Uh, full disclosure, I absolutely love Japanese cinema, Same. and I'm incredibly biased towards it. Same. Yeah, Kubrick definitely got me into, like, studying movies and being interested in movies, and I started with American films, just like everyone did, but it was the day I watched uh, Rashomon by Kurosawa that I was like, okay, gotta start diving into this. And so that's always sort of been, uh, the, that country and its culture and its film has always been a really big gateway for me into how much I love film and why I got into it in the first place. So, um, yeah, I mean, I got into film through Godzilla as like a kid. And then I think I really fell in love with film through all of Kurosawa's films in college. So, um, um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to a page of badness, uh, early silent Japanese film. I have not seen anything like this. Yeah. Roland Emmerich's Godzilla had a big impact on me too. <laughs> <laughs> A huge thank you to Nathan Royal for our show's music. If you're enjoying A Century in Cinema, we'd love if you took a second to help support the show. Easiest way to do that is just to subscribe, give us a nice rating and a review for the internet algorithms, and recommend us to someone else who likes movies, someone else looking for a new podcast. Thank you so much to you, our listeners, and we'll have a new episode out next week. 